Welcome. Welcome to you as well. <laughs> I was trying to welcome the listening audience, but always nice to see you. So this is still How to Save a Planet. <laughs> yep. I'm Alex Bloomberg. I'm Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. And this is the podcast where we talk about what we need to do to address the climate crisis and how we're going to make those things happen. So remember that maskless time when we could actually go into a studio and record interviews? Oh, yeah, it was great. They're great snacks at Gimlet. Yes. (laughs) And around that time, early, early on. Before we even had a name for the show. You and I both went into a podcast studio Mm -hmm. and did an interview with this person. My name is Gina McCarthy, and I uh, am the director of the Harvard Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. We did this interview with Gina about a year ago. She's one of my favorite people working on the environment. She's super smart. Obviously, love her Boston accent. And at the time, we were talking to her because she was just getting ready to take a new job as head of NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is this really big environmental group. The job, though, it turns out, she didn't keep for very long because just very recently, a new job opportunity came her way. To serve as the first ever national climate advisor to lead the newly formed White House Office of Domestic Policy. I'm appointing Gina McCarthy. That is President-elect Joe Biden making Gina's new job offer official. She'll be serving in a newly created role in the White House as National Climate Advisor, where she'll be leading a team to coordinate climate work across the branches of the federal government, the federal agencies, with the goal of putting the U.S. on track to reach carbon neutral before 2050. In other words, she's America's brand new climate czar. Do we still call people czars? It's a weird title. And I'm always like, is it with a CZ or a TS? And is Zarina still a thing? (laughs) I mean, I remember when we had the first Zara. That's how old I am. Anyway, she's the person who's going to be leading the charge into the carbonless future. So when we sat down to talk to Gina about a year ago, we were just starting to figure out what this podcast was going to be. And so we had this just getting to know you conversation. But now that Gina is going to be in this huge job coordinating federal domestic climate policy out of the White House, we thought you all might want to get to know her as well. Right. So on today's episode, getting to know the person who will be leading the White House's response to the climate crisis. That's coming up after the break. So back last year, in the before times, when we sat down for our Get to Know You conversation with Gina McCarthy, we started off by asking about her career. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Before this new White House appointment, she was the head of NRDC. Prior to that, she was director of the Harvard Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. And before that, she held the job she's probably best known for. She ran the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, under President Obama. But she told us that she got her start in local government, very local. My first job in government was as the first full-time Board of Health agent in the town of Canton, Massachusetts. What did that entail? Everything I didn't know. 
um, <laughs> but figured out. Well, you know, it was in the really the mid 80s, early to mid 80s. And it was, you know, I had uh, thought I was going into community health. I did a lot of work with community health centers out of graduate school. And I realized that people were walking into the health centers who simply had lots of environmental challenges like dirty mm. air, they were breathing, lead paint, their kids were eating, you know, not enough nutrition. They were poor that didn't have good housing. And I realized then that, that you know, what happens in the world is, is highly dependent on, on the environment they live in and what kind of resources they have available to them. So when I went to work in the town of Canton, I, I really, I, I ended up being in charge of deciding whether the water quality was good enough to drink. I became the hazardous waste coordinator for the state. I went around and looked at industries and how they were, how they were handling their waste and... I was doing food inspections. I was doing oh, housing inspections. I was doing septic system <laughs> inspections. You know, I'd get called when somebody's dog died and they thought it was a pesticide exposure because somebody sprayed huh. for mosquitoes next door. Wow. And as you can imagine, it became very clear to me wow. why we were having such pollution problems because of the deficiency in understanding the connections between environmental exposures and health, mm -hmm. but also the the lack of really good standards and, and regulations and enforcement and compliance. Mm -hmm. Can you get an example of like one of the most pronounced areas where the environment was directly impacting human health? I, I went to inspect industries uh, to see what kind of chemicals they had, whether they were labeling them right, because I was just really interested in knowing what the challenges were in this town of 20,000. And we had some big facilities. Yeah. And one of them was uh, I went to was basically, a, it was a corrugated box company. And I went into the company to see just what it did, you know, what it has and, and what's going on there. And I was given a tour and I, and I realized that they had this printing shop where they printed labels or, or you know, basically logos and other things on these boxes. And, and I realized that looking at the vats that they put them in, there were all kinds of chemicals that were in there, including the print, which was a lead-based ink. And all I saw was a, a pipe going outside the building. Uh -oh. So I said to them, oh, no. you know, where is that going? And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what are you doing with your lead-based ink? And they said, oh, yeah, there's a tank over there. I said, fine, dig it up. Let me see it. Because was, it was pretty clear to me that I caught them off guard. And, and I was supposed to go and revisit them on a Monday to see what was out there. Only I went back and they had already dug it up. I could see the gravel already behind there. And I got this phone call from the neighborhood saying that some kids were out playing in the woods and there's this big stinky pile of dirty soil mm. that they came in after having played in it. 
Yikes. And they can't get the, the, the dirt off their hands, blah, 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 blah. So, of course, I put two and two together, and I realized they, they had been discharging right out next to a neighborhood. They put the pile of stuff right in the kids' backyards, and those kids are exposed to a, to, to a tremendous amount of lead in the soil, right? Oh. And so I called in the strike force at the Department of Environmental Protection and at EPA, and they immediately went to the courts and they tried to get an injunction and some criminal indictments for this. And the judge who was listening to it stopped the whole thing and he basically looked at his pencil and he said, there's lead in my pencil and this isn't doing anything to me and he dismissed it all. (gasps) No. This was the 80s, right? (laughs) This was the challenge that we had to face. Huh. And, and I was so shocked by that wow. because you go, out of, you go out of graduate school and you think everybody cares about these things and all you have to do is work the system and blah, 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 blah. But it didn't, it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it just didn't matter. And on the other side of, of the coin, when I was in Canton, we had this, you know, I was 26, I think, at the time. They uncovered... Uh, a whole pile of drums that had oil in it, PCB contaminated oil, in the middle of woods where there used to be a manufacturer 20 years ago and they just dumped it all, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the challenge that I faced was nobody called me, they called the I-team and all of a sudden we were surrounded by news reporters coming in oh, like saying- like the local news team? You know, yes. I-team, and on the spot, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> And what happened was that there was some concerned residents in the area that had already raised concerns about the amount of cancer in their neighborhood. So that when the I-team was there, they made that direct connection and said, these these people must be impacted. And the community themselves got worried about it. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, I was in the middle of a cancer cluster. And so I, I just... What I did is instead of just relying on the state who I called in, I did my own analysis. I pulled up all the death certificates. I looked at where they were, what the ages were, what the sex of the population was. And we did a big community meeting and said, look, it, uh, most of, of these cancers are not associated with exposures, that this is soil over there. I don't know what the root of exposure could be for these people, but we'll keep track of it. But everything we saw didn't indicate a direct connection. And the community relaxed a little bit, some of them, but you know, what happened in that community was a lot of the people just wanted to stop talking about it. And the other half wanted to keep probing it because they didn't believe a single thing that I said. Mm. And so it sort of was a tremendous learning experience about the challenges you're facing in explaining the science and the challenges you're facing in terms of the emotional issues that are involved with health and people's perception of that in their experience. Yeah. For me, it was probably one of the best experiences I ever had because I knew enough never to dismiss people's fears just because I didn't think science proved it. You have to keep doing the analysis. You have to do the cleanup. You can't dismiss any concerns. And it made me realize that health is what matters to people more than anything else in the world. Yeah. The experience that you're describing so far really have a lot to do with 
human health. And it seems like the way that you approach environmental issues is through this health perspective, which is quite different than the way a lot of people think about it as as just sort of an environmental quality issue without connecting that back to human health or, or public health. Has that been a through line Throughout all of your work, is that yeah. really at the core of what drives you? Yes, it it is because you know in every agency that I've ever worked in, it was the standard that you looked at was whether or not it was sufficient for human beings to live in a healthy way, and I think it was an it was a challenging. Uh, um, I think, way of looking at it and talking about it, even for people that worked at EPA. You know, they envisioned themselves as being somehow protecting natural resources. But I talked to them and I said, well, when we do cost-benefit analysis, what do you count? <laughs> you know, we, we benefit human beings. We stop people from being sick or we stop people from getting sicker. And we do that by protecting the natural resources. We need to to be healthy. And so there is no question in my mind that EPA is one of the most significant public health agencies that exists. And we have been able to protect public health in a way that other agencies simply have not been able to do. And it's because we've had a mission that is focused on human health, but recognizing the direct relationship between respect for natural resources and what that means for our ability to have a healthy world for people. I think of climate change as being no different than any other pollution problem. It is not a planetary issue. It is a human issue because the planet will adjust to whatever abuse it takes and continue to revolve around and revolve around the sun. And it just won't care whether people are able to survive or not. And I always joke and tell people that I think the planet would be happier without us because we're an incredibly disruptive species. It would probably be better off without (laughs) Um, us at this point. (laughs) You know, and and so I, I really desperately want people to begin to think about climate, which to me is the greatest public health challenge of our time, as being a human problem, a human problem that demands human beings to address it as we have with other, other pollution. At what point did you really start to think about climate being a primary concern? It was probably about uh, 20 years ago, maybe. Gina McCarthy, OG. Maybe a little bit earlier. You know, the science started to get pretty clear then. You know, I I helped to pull together the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which was the first cap-and-trade program in the U.S. We did it with the New England and Mid-Atlantic states because we had an opportunity then to show that that you could do this in a way that satisfied the economic concerns and the health and planetary issues. Mm -hmm. You know, as soon as we began to to actually have solutions available, I got frustrated about the lack of, of government leadership to make sure that those solutions were available to everybody. And I think 
I think the fossil fuel companies have spent a great deal of time and money making sure that they take the fun out of it. The way they tell us that it's going to be too expensive to fix, you know, yeah. and, and, and it couldn't be more untrue. I want to show that the move to a zero carbon future is not just possible, but it's better and it builds an economic future that is much more stable and much more lucrative than relying on fossil fuels continuously when we know the harm it has caused. And I am not going to just demand clean energy. I'm going to demand that fossil fuels pony up and recognize that they are not the future for us anymore. They are the basis for every organic chemical out there that is causing us trouble. They are the reason why people are worried about plastics in the ocean and worried about the coral reefs deteriorating. They are the very reason why we don't have water to drink in some places. And where some places the water is there, but you shouldn't be drinking it. We have learned so much since the Industrial Revolution. That was a great horse for us to ride until we figured out that it wouldn't get us beyond where we are today. And so we have to change ponies, folks. We've done it before. <laughs> we can do it again. This is a great metaphor. I look forward to seeing how it plays out after the break. <laughs> Welcome back from the break. We're still hanging out with Gina McCarthy, learning about what makes her tick. And how we move the world off of fossil fuels. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you think about the role of business as both a problem and a solution. I mean, I'm thinking right now back to my environmental law class at, at Harvard in like 2001 and learning about the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act and where yeah. liability exists for cleaning up pollution in the future when it's found to be problematic. So yeah. if there's something you want to add about that piece of it, because you're you're describing scenarios that deal with communities, public health, pollution, the role of government, but obviously, like a lot of the problems are caused by businesses in these scenarios as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't I, I don't tend to put black hats and white hats on people or even corporations. I, I tend to look at what they do before I do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, I was a regulator because I understood that there was a role for regulation. And that role was that businesses that produce pollution, businesses that can impact other people's right to public health, right to be healthy, right to breathe clean air, right to have clean water to drink. Those are inherent rights to me that this country has embraced. And when, when an individual is robbed of that right and they have no individual course of action, the government has to regulate. That's what we do. Yeah. That's why businesses are regulated and held liable when they actually have an impact on human beings' health when those human beings have no ability on their own to protect themselves. That has to be regulated. We have no right to regulate just because we like it. 
or because we think it's better, we have a right and a responsibility to regulate when individuals cannot protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And so businesses for a long time before regulation had an ability to rob their employees of their health from occupational exposure, had a right to, you know, emit emissions into our air and water that robbed people of an ability to have clean air and clean water and clean land. And we have been looking at at making sure that we give the public the rights they need to the extent that science allows us to determine that. Well, it's the same with fossil fuel companies. You know, there is some responsibility on the part of businesses to ensure that they're producing products that, that where we understand the full implications, they have not felt that responsibility. You've been in this policy universe for a while. You've worked with many different in- administrations. And policy is sort of like a dry subject, but it, I think it's incredibly important. Can you Not talk to me? Not dry to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're talking to a couple policy wonks here. <laughs> talk about like— What are know, the levers that you feel yeah. like really need to be pulled right now in terms of policy? And I guess I would say in the yeah. U.S. specifically— You know, I think we have a wealth of opportunities now. And the challenge really is to look at how we are spending public dollars and our own attention to drive those solutions to be taken up. You know, just example after example, you know, the the energy system is changing now because we did exert policies. We did fund renewable energy investments. We did take action at the local and state level to demand a certain amount of renewables in our energy mix. All those things changed the way that industry responded by producing and investing more in renewable energy. It brought innovations to the table. That's how it's supposed to work. We did regulate to make sure that dirty energy was stopping its impact on our health, which added uh, emphasis on the the movement to clean energy. Now we have to take that same approach to transportation, but it's not easy. It's not a widget fix. It's Mm -hmm. great to have, you know, electric vehicles, but we need to work people to make them understand that electric vehicles are better cars. Alex, do you have any thoughts about electric vehicles being better cars? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, As a proud owner of an electric vehicle, I can tell you. It's ridiculous. They're better. They're just better. (laughs) Exactly. This is the conversation I have all the time. You never have to go to a gas station. You bring it home, you put it in your garage, you just plug it into the wall, and then it goes the next day. Exactly. And I talk about, you know, the fact that you want to have solar in your home so you generate electricity that you force utilities to buy. That's a nice thing to do. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we have been made to think that this is a big problem, and it is, but it's the biggest opportunity we have for a better life, mm-hmm. a better way of spending our money. Yeah. And instead, we th- we're thinking that we have no solutions here. That's wrong. We do have solutions, and each and every one of those solutions make our world a better place. So how do we implement those faster? What are the policies or other things that can help us? Uh, scale those solutions. 
At the federal level, it's what we spend money on, what we can regulate where regulation is necessary. It's working with mayors who have made commitments, which there are hundreds of them, to mm -hmm. meet the Paris Agreement and to start building the constituencies for them that are going to demand them to do it. You know, it's making people realize that everything that the fossil fuel companies is telling us is incorrect. What, what is the most boring but necessary <laughs> step we need to take to get to where we need to be? I love this question. <laughs> maybe it's boring, but maybe it's also the most stressful, is that I really worry about the continued pressure for change immediately. I think hmm. it tends to make some of the better ideas come off the table. Um, be, because, you know, I also don't think that change happens in an evenly level sequence, like, oh, we'll do 5% this year, 5% next year. I think we got to be bold and let solutions come our way when you engage people that are smart, that are creative. You know, I feel like saying, just shut up. Let's get moving. <laughs> you know, let's agree that we're going to be as aggressive as we can and demand the number we need in 2030 because I've never known anything that, that you needed to do big that happened in tiny little steps. Yeah. That's actually a part of the yeah. ethos of how the EPA works, right? That we set these very ambitious goals, whether that's for air quality or other measures, that we're not exactly sure how we're going to reach. The technology is not fully in place yet, but we know that that's what's necessary to protect public health. And so we just set the bar where it needs to be and then figure out how to jump that high, right? That's exactly right. So we tend to do it in a couple of different ways, which is by keeping our eye out for innovation. So you never want to go further than you can without disrupting life, right? So so you don't want to start saying, okay, half the population has to turn their lights off every Tuesday and Thursday. The other right. half on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And then for the weekend, we'll all enjoy it. It just doesn't work like that. Right. <laughs> People won't accept it and you don't do it, right? Yeah. So instead, you say to yourself, what can everybody do? We're going to demand that today and keep the lights on. And then we're going to look for those innovations that continue to push us forward faster and faster. And we're going to change that and we're going to make that the standard next. Do you know mm, what I mean? Right. You keep driving what can work. And then you keep rewarding that success and in investing in another. How do you see the role of government and other entities in pushing the innovation that we need, if that's a big part of the solution? How do we incentivize that or accelerate the innovation that will help us get there? You know, Ayanna, that's a, a really big question. And, and the, the way that I've always envisioned it is you have a push and a pull that you have, you have an opportunity to push. Now the push means you regulate so that if there's an innovation that happened that can protect more people and your goal is to protect people and their health, then you have to require that that innovation get into the system in higher and higher levels as much as, as the economy can tolerate, you know, as much as people can tolerate without concerns that job losses are going to be too large and all that stuff. You got to do that. So that's, that is regulation. 
That is a push. Now, the pull is just as interesting. The pull means you reward innovation. You do it in a couple of different ways. You invest in it. And so the big connection that people haven't made during the Obama administration was the fact that that we did both push and pull. President Obama invested very heavily in renewable energy when we had the economic downturn. Mm -hmm. He did that because it grew jobs, but he did it because it gave us more ability to be firmer on regulation because we had answers that we could demand to get into the system because we had renewable energy that was much better developed and cheaper so that we could drive that into the system through regulation. That's the clever thing you do is you marry both. So those are the two things that government does. It pushes and it pulls. And a smart system does both, recognizing that there's an ability to take advantage of both, which moves the needle for both. And I think since the Reagan administration, there's been a concerted effort to say that that government is dysfunctional, it can't work. And as a result, a lot of government right now is dysfunctional and isn't working. So there's just so many ways in which we can have the kind of future we all want as long as we're willing to make government work for us. And so it's, you know, I feel bad, Alex, that you're asking me what's boring and to talk about. I probably love the most boring things like that <laughs> well, me too. I mean, to talk me too. about. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot about, you know, we have the solutions we need. What are you seeing out there that you think is so great? If you could give a shout out to an individual or an organization doing really important climate work, whose work do you think deserves a spotlight right now? You know, honestly, all of the work that's being done at the city and state level is remarkable. I know that everybody points to California, but there's a good reason for that. Shout out to California. They are really being very cutting edge. Um, And not just in terms of looking at, you know, their cap and trade program, but their their clean cars work has been remarkable. They are now doing work in each and every community that's looking at community level impacts and, and addressing, you know, environmental justice issues and integrating that into how they think and how they act. So there's a wholeness about their approach that to me is very satisfying. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed at so many states that used to deny climate change and now they're on the cutting edge of of requiring renewable energy to be a very big part of the portfolio of recognizing they can no longer sustain coal. If you look at cities, you know, you've got the mayor of Pittsburgh out there on the stump talking about how they're going to transform what was one of the sort of, if I could phrase it nicely, hell holes during the 70s in terms of the pollution they had. (laughs) And they're changing that around to to be a leader and look at how to grow jobs and, and work with their surrounding communities and states. We're at this moment in the U.S. finally, where a lot of people are are worried, you know, people understand how big a problem climate change is, how big a threat it is. They want to see solutions happen faster, but a lot of people aren't really sure what to do. So for people who, you know, have a job and other responsibilities and not a lot of time, how can that person help? 
Get out in your community. You know, there's many things that you can do inside your home, but honestly, what I am looking for is to return to a sense of community the way it used to be. And I'm sorry to sound so nostalgic, but I've been around for a while. And I want people to get outside. I want them to work together. I don't want them to work by themselves. And I want them to understand that it's not just about new light bulbs and better efficient appliances, but it's about getting together to tell the next mayor that you're going to support them with everything you can to help them be successful in transforming their transportation system in your city and making places uh, where their kids go to play safer and healthier. By, you know, be part of the community spirit that made the United States where we are today, not demanding that they step aside, but demanding that they step up. Mm-hmm. You know, be for something. You know, when I was in Connecticut, we used to give out climate awards, and I will never forget one award where we gave out about six awards, but two of the recipients. One was 10 years old, and the other one was well into his 80s. The, the young kid, as a school project, went around and signed people up for clean energy programs in the state. And if you signed up 100 households, you got a solar panel for your school. And this kid did that. All, all 100 families signed up. And he got it. a solar panel so that you could visibly show the next generation that renewable energy was here and they could touch it. And he was a fabulous kid. And then I met this older guy who was, I think he was like 82, 84. He lived in a nursing home. What he did in that nursing home was to make that nursing home energy efficient. And he went out and he talked to other seniors. Both of them were worth celebrating. Absolutely. And what we need to get is the middle. You know, they didn't sit around and say, I'm just cashing it in now. I don't have to do anything more to prove myself. I'm too young. I'm too old. It's too hard. It's too big. Yeah. Exactly. And the young kid didn't say, well, this is too big for me to do anything. Maybe I'll, you know, just go out and, and get candy on Halloween when I knock on doors. We need to get his innocence and that older man's dedication and persistence And we need to infect everybody in between to have that same attitude. Because I know that human ingenuity and our caring for one another and our working within communities will get us where we need to be. Because, in fact, it's the only thing that ever got us where we are today. And and it's time for us to just step up and shut up. (laughs) (laughs) From whatever crystal ball you have, if you could see two different futures, the one where you let yourself be as optimistic as you can be and the one where your worst fears are realized, can you help us kind of see what those divergent futures might look like? The world that we're worried about, um, that world will be, I think, a world in which you will see incredible conflicts to access primary resources that human beings need to live, (laughs) which is clean air and clean water and and food. And so I see huge amounts of 
challenges in terms of forced migrations in areas that are now growing food that will will be deserts in the future. I yeah. see an inability to provide water resources to communities that need it. And certainly you see communities that have thriving populations that will no longer be livable, that will be fully inundated by sea change. You see some of these impacts today in challenges. It's just a lot more. What does it look like if we get it right? My hope um, is that you will have communities that have nutritious food to eat, that will be delivered locally, Um, in a way that will have jobs associated with it. You'll see renewable energy um, and energy efficiency. You will have homes that have good indoor air quality and cities that have great outdoor air quality, ambient air. You'll see rural communities being able to, to work remotely so they're not having to get their cars uh, that are dirty or even drive their electric vehicles far in order to have good employment opportunities. Um, You'll be able to see families that can live in communities that are acting like communities, um, working together to, to design a future that's good for them. You will see local communities, that are communities of color and low-income communities that have access to the same health that the rest of us currently enjoy. Now, I realize that all of these things are my fantasy of, of the best, but I will demand nothing less. Because <laughs> if I demand that, maybe I'll get at least a good portion of the way there. And, and frankly, I, I don't know how as human beings we would accept anything less than that. I am ready for that future. Um, yeah. The way we exist right now is not working uh, in, in the way we need it to. It's as simple as that. And, and we can see it in the number of people that are, that are being left behind. And yeah. it's not just not working, it's downright unfair. And if we don't deal with these inequities, then we know that, that there are going to be challenges that we cannot beat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we won't want to see that world, and I'm not going to live in it. And I have two grandchildren. I'll be damned if you're going to make me live in it. Gina, how screwed are we? <laughs> uh, I think we're in a very, very challenging situation. Um, I think much of the the challenges you see people facing today, many of them are related to the challenge of climate change and the inequities that we now see in the system and the fact that a lot of the people with money um, seem to be able to sort of mess up our perception of reality in a way, uh, not just science, but our reality. And, and that's why I don't see any way that gets us out of this without people becoming much more active, much more vocal, us demanding that, that we be served, not just the, the wealthy. And, yeah. and I'm not talking about a revolution. I'm, I'm talking about an evolution in the way in which 
we have, are approaching our problems. You know, the move away from fossil fuels is not going to be impossible. It's not going to turn our lights off. It's not going to force us to take actions that are going to be painful. It is exactly opposite of that. I'm one of the ones that are just trying to light a fire under people and, and debunk the idea that a zero-carbon future is impossible to achieve or would be to our economic disadvantage to achieve. I think nothing could be further from the truth. The only question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we actually start that process? And the process has to be started at the community level. And how I know that if you build an infrastructure below them that's demanding it, then we will get a better city as a result. That's why I'm excited about states continuing to push for changes that they know will make their lives better. I'm not fixing the damn planet. I'm, I'm fixing my home, you know, mm -hmm. my place to live. And, and we have so much available to us that can do that. We have to stop listening to the negativity and start building up hope again. It's not unlike what we did in the 60s and 70s. We need a movement, folks. I don't want a technology fix. I want a movement. Mm. The young people got it. They know it. They're demanding it. So we need a wake-up call. And I think the young people are providing that wake-up call. And folks like me better listen. While I don't think we are in a hopeless situation, I think we need to start building hope if we want to win. So that was our conversation from over a year ago with Gina McCarthy, the person who will be leading domestic climate policy for the White House. And Ayanna, can we just acknowledge what a relief it is just to have this position in the White House? Yeah. And that it is occupied by somebody as experienced and fired up as Gina McCarthy is. She is fired up She's all the fired way up, up. <laughs> which is really exciting. And this position for Gina and the team that she's now putting together was created because the Biden administration is committed to their climate policy agenda. And it makes me think of something that Senator Elizabeth Warren often says, mm -hmm. which is personnel is policy. And so this does matter that they're investing in building this team inside of the White House. And one of the people on Gina's new team is Maggie Thomas, who will be chief of staff for this new White House Office of Domestic Climate Policy. And we had Maggie on the show a while ago on the episode about how 2020 became a climate election. Back then, Maggie had just finished her work as the climate advisor for Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign. And Maggie said, we're at a key inflection point. There's a choice and we are at a fork in the road. And this issue should be the priority for the nation. We need a full government mobilization to defeat the climate crisis. And this has to be a priority starting at the top, which is from the president. And we're really excited to be continuing to cover what actually happens, how the Biden administration continues to work on climate and what Gina and her team do over the next many years. We'll provide both scrutiny and encouragement as needed. Yeah. And we know that Gina's really got her work cut out for her, right? The Biden-Harris transition team has been getting up to speed on what's been happening in federal agencies on climate in the last four years. A lot of experts have been purged and advisory boards have been gutted. So this is not going to be easy. In fact, it might be harder 
than people had anticipated. But obviously, it's worth it. And this brings us to our action items at the end of the podcast. As far as what you can do, the number one action item we have is for all of you to continue to pay attention and hold Gina McCarthy and the Biden administration accountable. So in order to get us all geared up and ready to play that role as citizens, we have in the show notes and the newsletter this week links to Biden's climate and energy plan and to his environmental justice plan so that you can get up to speed on what they've actually proposed. We will put those links in our newsletter, which you can sign up to by going to howtosaveaplanet.show. We will also throw in a couple of other links to interesting articles there. For example, an article describing what the Biden-Harris administration can do just on its own as the executive branch. And also there's a great essay from Gina. Where is that essay, Ayana? The essay happens to be in this delightful and inspiring <laughs> anthology that I co-edited called ah, All We Can Save. Right. And her essay in there is called Public Service for Public Health. And I found it really compelling. And finally, we know that there are times like now when it's sometimes hard to focus on climate policy, given what is happening in our government and our nation right now. (laughs) I will admit that I have neither read nor written any climate policy documents in the last week. We really need Congress to be intact and able to do its part. Yeah. So we should be paying attention to what's happening now in America. All right. Hang in there, everyone. It's It's been a doozy, but we're with you, and we'll be back next week. How to Save a Planet is a Spotify original podcast and Gimlet production. It's hosted by me, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. And me, Alex Bloomberg. Our reporters and producers are Kendra Pierre-Lewis, Rachel Waldholtz, Anna Ladd, and Felix Poon. Our senior producer is Lauren Silverman. Our editor is Caitlin Kenny. Sound design and mixing by Peter Leonard, with original music by Emma Munger. Our fact checker this episode is Claudia Geib. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.